It's, uh, it's been a beautiful day today on planet Earth, don't you think? And this day of gratitude, at least in this country. And great meal, huh? Just so, so touched by what the kitchen gave us. And I don't know if some of you saw as you go up the stairs to the meeting rooms that, I don't know what you call it, mobile? That uh, are oh, so striking, so, so touching to see that creation. And I appreciated Greg's encouragement to us this morning of really taking in, feeling this, this gratitude around all of these things we have, giving thanks. And not only a beautiful day on this earth today, but also troubled, troubled day. Today in Plymouth, Massachusetts, people gathered to honor what's called a National Day of Mourning. Really, I'm remembering the effects kind of colonization has had on and does continues to have on the indigenous people in the Americas. And again, something that Greg had acknowledged this morning. And that this too is part of our path, part of what we're doing here is these kinds of acknowledgement of the suffering that is still carried forward in unskillful ways. You know, I, th I think it's important to remember you know, as a result of colonization from you know, over a 400 year span from the 1500s, early 1500s, really till the time of when Columbus came till the 1900s, the Native American population declined somewhere between 80 to 98%. So it's a devastating inheritance uh, that we are thrown into. And I think it gives a power to actually what we're doing here to practice in light of this and practice with minds that have been shaped by this and shaping these minds in a different way. And again, as, as Greg has had mentioned, I, th I think it's important to really acknowledge that it's here on this land here. Like if you were to drive up uh, towards Peterson on, uh, on the road, off to the left, there's actually some archeological remnants of indigenous peoples probably related to the Nipmucks. And then if you walk actually the other direction, like if you're on the loop and instead of following the loop all the way, but you kind of continue by this farm, Carter Stevens, across from their farm, there's this interesting uh, plaque on, on one of the sheds there that says uh, Allen Hill. And then underneath that, settled in 1749, elevation 1,230 feet. So we can see right here, there's this landmark of colonization. You know, to settle Allen Hill here 
took many unskillful acts of colonization for that settling to happen by 1749. And as Winnie had mentioned really in her, her talk a, a couple of weeks ago, and I had mentioned towards the beginning of, of the retreat, recognizing this as a kind of inheritance rem, reminds us of the power of what we're doing here to transform these hearts and minds. And I wanna point out in the early Buddhist text, we can actually hear the Buddha express concern for very similar societal dynamics of, of oppression. And I wanna share that just so we can tie it into what we're doing here on this long retreat. It's such a important piece to see it as, as part of the path, really from this, this path of noticing and recognizing the dynamics of dukkha onward towards freedom. For example, what you'll find in a number of, of discourses that usually some Brahmin will come to the Buddha and, and ask him what he thinks about this Brahminical societal system that surrounded, that was, uh, surrounded the, the Buddha, that divided people into four classes with the Brahmins being superior and others being inferior. And it was a system mostly based on the family you were born into. And time and again, the Buddha would point out, you know, this uh, in going at different angles, emphasize, you know, just because someone was born into a certain family doesn't make them better than others. And taking, into that, uh, taking that into account, we can see how radical the Buddha's monastic community was, a community in which um, sometimes a Brahmin might be bowing down to one that was lower down on the societal rung. The monastic community mixed that entire scene up. It was never based on merely because of the family that one was born into. So we can see a, a community expressing a critique of, a, of an oppressive system, allowing something different to come into the world. Or a Brahmin asked the Buddha, about this idea of Brahmins being born from the mouth of God. And that's what makes them superior. And the Buddha's pretty straightforward. He said, yeah, you know, actually I've seen Brahmins born just like everybody else from a mother's womb. <laughs> so I'm not really buying that one. <laughs> or in the Vasetta Sutta, he, he gives this interesting explanation. He says, he, he, he gives this analogy of, he says, you know, you can distinguish other animals by their colors and the markings on their bodies, you could say. But you can't do that with humans. It doesn't fit. You can't distinguish who is better than another by how they look. Really quite a striking commentary, even if we fast forward to 2,600 years. Or yet again in, a, in the Esukari Sutta in the Middle Length Discourses pointing out that the oppressive system of the Brahmins was actually, it was created without the consent of other people. And there's something problematic about that. And then goes on to point that if, if one person serves another person and ends up better off, for example, having more wholesomeness in their lives, then wonderful, that's a, that's a wholesome relationship. 
Yet if one person serves another person and they end up worse off, not so good. Find it interesting implications for the economic systems that we find ourselves surrounded by. And what I want to point out is both this Brahminical system, you could say, of oppression 2,600 years ago and the, and the process of colonization arise out of a particular state of mind. It's a particular state of mind that arises again and again on retreat. I think making this connection gives, again, the sense of the power of what we're doing here. And it's this, this quality of mana, or often translated as, as conceit, sometimes called comparing mind. And it's when the mind says, I am better than, or it says, I'm less than or equal to. And I'm going to be speaking more about this, this dynamic of saying, I am better than, or getting hooked by, I am less than. It's this flavor of the judgmental mind. It's wild to think that, that it's that state of mind that's given rise to such systems of oppression. And really what we see in kind of the case of the process of colonization is just groups of people getting lost in mana towards other groups of people. It's the collective dimension of this, the collective dimension of greed, hatred, and delusion. As I've said a number of times, mind is society the manifestation of it. So it gives us the chance to bring a freedom beyond just our own lives. And it's so much closer than that you know, in these minds of ours. I mean, it's a trip. I could be driving down the road and all the mind sees is a bumper sticker. And just from that, I can have a strong visceral sense that that person should be excluded. I haven't even met that person, but I feel pretty certain about it, that they are less than because of a bumper sticker on a car. Have you, mind, have you seen your mind do that? Especially on retreat, it's, it's amazing. We pick up so little data of the others around us. It might be the slow one or the fast one, the loud one or the quiet one, the one who's late, the one who's early. And there it is. We create a whole world around that, deeming someone less than. Sometimes we deem them better than. It's amazing the stories that creep in. This is, this is the budding of of judging. This is the budding of conceit. And then, of course, there's all these collective dimensions. Just to that, of what arises here on this retreat is we're here on retreat together. That's why it's, it's so good on retreat to be so suspicious when you have that, do you ever have that feeling where you feel like you really know what's going on for that other person? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so know it. Oh, I'm glad to hear it's not only my mind that does that, maybe yours does too. And it can work the other way too. The fear of being judged 
Well, I, I know on retreat, sometimes I'm, I just find my body just tightening because of, of that sense of the fear of being judged. Like I probably have had a meltdown on retreat just by from dropping something like a fork, you know, <laughs> or, or a cup. <laughs> or coming in late into the hall, or simply swallowing sometimes the complications that arise in this mind of navigating that. It's just like, oh my God. Oh. Somebody actually left a, a question around this. Sometimes I get really self-conscious here. How can I be confident to be myself around others? I think this is an important question. It can be really tricky. That sense, that sense of, of tightening around this. There's a great Hafiz poem, kind of translated or understood through the, the lens of Daniel Ladinsky called Crooked Deals. So if he says, there is a madman inside of you who is always running for office. Why vote him in? He never keeps the account straight. He gets all kinds of crooked deals happening all over town that will just give you a big headache and glue to your kisser a gigantic confused frown. <laughs> really, that's all we're doing is we're just trying to stop voting that madman in again. And I do want to point out that it can also work really in the opposite direction. And this, in, in some ways, I think is quite interesting just in terms of the process of uh, colonization, the underbelly of colonization. And, and this, the way it overlaps with what happens here on, on retreat is, is when we sometimes have that Vipassana romance where we fall in love with someone that we've never met before. And there's such certainty about it. Again, the mind is just creating the story about someone that can feel so certain that we have a sense of that other person. And on the collective level, we, we see this in terms of colonization, in terms of exoticizing the other, the quote unquote, noble savage. For example, I remember speaking with a friend of mine, a native friend of, uh, of mine about this, and she's pointed out she's been given two options by uh, kind of the white dominant society. Either she's holier than everyone and just because she's native, she is so spiritual and has connections with everything or the drunk Indian. No room to be a human being in that kind of, that kind of uh, classification that minds do on the collective level. Or a, a a Tibetan refugee who had come to this country that was in New Mexico. It was the same thing, you know, this is in Santa Fe too, so, you know. People finding out that he's Tibetan and all of a sudden just elevated to this point where he felt like it wasn't, they weren't seeing him anymore. Or, I think he was working at a grocery store at the time, completely invisible. Only two options. 
This is what happens in these minds when we get lost in these subtle forms of conceit, of, of the mind creating a world that isn't, isn't in touch with what's in front of us. And here it is, it happens here on retreat. And I think it's such a cool thing that it happens on retreat because then we get to, to see it, to, to allow the mind to become free of it. It's a beautiful thing to be in the midst of this. I remember Yogi at the end of a retreat I was leading. So beautiful, you know, he's expressing gratitude for the retreat. And then he said, you know, I, and now I take it back all those stories my mind created about all of you during the retreat. <laughs> Such a wonderful thing. So hopefully you're hearing the, the part of the retreat I'm emphasizing here is what I call the relational field that we find ourselves in, in this silence. I think I mentioned this maybe the first day that we, we're here, we're here practicing alone and we're practicing together. And it has these impacts that you probably, probably notice day after day as we hear our milling around in the silence. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that it's also a relational field. There's an internal field, but there's also a relational field that we can be mindful of and curious about. It's so powerful in terms of our relational lives. And again, I think this is where uh, uh, there's a, a power to this, of really hearing the potential of addressing really the foundations of colonialism, or you could say in these days, neo-colonialism, this, 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 this ongoing uh, process of, of uh, systems of oppression. And I'm not saying it's the, the solution, but uh, I think an important part of the puzzle to start to bring mindfulness to these dynamics of the heart and mind. And in terms of addressing this and bringing it into our practice, I want to share with you a particular practice that the Buddha recommends that has a very interesting overlap. And it's the practice of, uh, usually called guarding the senses or sense restraint. And I wanna share with you the Buddha's instructions on this practice. So he says, he gives this, this unfolding of experience. He says, on seeing a form with the eye, or you could say on hearing a sound with the ear, and then goes through all the other sense gates. We'll just use those two. On, on seeing a form with the eye, or on hearing a sound with the ear, a practitioner does not grasp at any theme or secondary characteristics by which if they were to dwell without restraint over that faculty of the eye or the ear, let's say, unskillful qualities such as greed or aversion might assail them. And from this uh, being endowed with this noble restraint over the sense faculties, a practitioner is inwardly sensitive to a pleasure, the pleasure of being blameless. So I, I really wanna parse this apart, take some time just with just these few sentences to get a sense of this. So the first thing I wanna point out is that in this context, sense restraint or guarding the senses is not about trying not to see anything or hear anything. 
He's not saying that. He's talking about that there are these moments where seeing is happening, hearing is happening. That, that's, that's a misunderstanding of what sense restraint is. And at the same time, it's, we're not changing here. It, it can be really helpful to kind of guard the senses in that other way. For example, with, um, with, with the eyes, it really, can be really helpful not to look around. So it's not about trying to get rid of that. It's just trying to give another dimension to this because there's still things coming in from this relational field in terms of the, the experiences that we're seeing and hearing around other bodies or smelling. So it's important to take this into account and get an understanding of what sense restraint actually means. And the Buddha is very clear about what sense restraint is, is it's not grasping at any theme or detail that comes with a moment of seeing or a moment of hearing. So the, the Pali word for theme is nimitta. And it's, it's really connected with, you could say, perception. You can say it's a sign used to, to capture something, to recognize something. So it's, it's, it's intertwined with, with perception. For example, there's a, and nimitta, of course, is, is also used in, in practice of samadhi, but it's, it's used in other ways. For example, there's a, a sutta where uh, there's a fellow, Patalia, and the Buddha sees Patali and assumes that the Patali is a householder because he has the nimitta, he has the, the, the marks and signs. He's wearing the clothing of a householder. Or there's another sutta where there's a woman and, and, and she recognizes this monastic as the son of someone that she knows because he had the nimitta, he had the, these markings, the hands and feet in the voice of that family. So it's really around this um, perception, the activity of mind responsible for for creating these signs in this context is sanya. Usually translated as perception, I like recognition. It's just that mind's ability to name experience. Like there's a sound, oh, that's a bird. Oh, that's the heating system, interesting. So it's that ability to recognize in that sense. You know, or it's the recognizing a taste. Oh, there's the hollyhock dressing. That's, that's, that's what that is. Yeah, I taste it on my mashed potatoes. Yeah, that's what that is. So it recognizes. So I wanna give an example of how this unfolds, sense restraint, and first how experience unfolds and then where sense restraint comes in. For example, here I am, I'm, I'm on retreat here at IMS. Maybe walking around in the, through the dining hall and I see a, a, a body walking. And as the, 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 there's the scene of the body walking, there is a nimitta, there is a recognition, a small concept of labeling that body. Oh man, oh women. And the, the word might not even come up, but there is a sense, oh, this is a man or a woman. By seeing a body moving, by seeing shapes and features. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those concepts. They can be used skillfully. But in terms of a person I have never met before in my life here at IMS, I have no idea 
if that is how that person identifies themselves. That's my idea. Right? That arises from this mind, man, woman. They might be a person who doesn't identify with either of those designations. Right? And to assume that that, that perception is correct, that's delusion. That's just something that's arising from the mind. And hopefully you can hear, if I were to grasp at that, get entangled in it, I might do something quite harmful. I might be just like those Brahmins who utilize a kind of societal system, a kind of naming that not everyone is consented to. If I were to grasp at that nimitta, that, that concept, man, woman, and get entangled in, entangled in it, it might be just like continuing a legacy of colonization. Just there, right? Just in that moment, seeing that. And of course, we can see other dimensions to that, just from the scene of a body moving, a body that we've never, ever met before. And seeing these collective dimensions of greed, hatred, and delusion get, get entangled with this nimitta, this, this recognition of a body. This is what happens in the society around these perceptions, these signs, such as man, woman. In 2016, female full-time workers made 82 cents for every dollar earned by men, a gender wage gap of 18%. Women on average earn less than men in virtually every single occupation for which there is sufficient earnings data for both men and women to calculate an earnings ratio. So right here in this relational field, these are these minds. And here is a way out right here at IMS. It's to guard the sense doors with mindfulness. And so again, I want to be clear, to guard doesn't mean to stop. I'm not trying to get the mind to stop from using the concepts man, woman. It just means to see it. It just means to see the activity of the mind so it doesn't get hooked by it. Because then if there's not that restraint, that's when unskillful qualities can arise and assail the mind. And again, how does the mind get hooked? Is it's, it's assuming that those, those recognitions, those perceptions are true and that I actually know what's in front of me. And this is a, such a cool thing to start to recognize. It's just noticing how the mind perceives, how it recognizes experience in this way around bodies. Because that's where the freedom is. That's where the freedom is so that there's, the mind doesn't get as hooked by that. Such a beautiful gift for this world. And this is the really important point. This is the part that everybody forgets.
It's that when endowed with this noble restraint over the sense faculties, when mindfulness is situated like this, when you're, when you're seeing these things and noticing these things, a practitioner is inwardly sensitive to the pleasure of being blameless. Wow, this is so sweet. I see how the mind sees that body as man or woman or sees it as old or young or attractive or unattractive. Wow, that feels so pleasurable that I'm noticing how the mind does that because it opens up this world of integrity for this mind. I don't have to stop the mind from doing it. It's just the scene that frees the mind. And it's such a sweet taste. It's the taste of freedom. And I want to point out recognition, perception, and the speed at which it works is so important. It's so helpful. Like, for example, I, this is when I was much younger. I think maybe I was in high school. And my mother had a cousin who lived in southern Montana. He had been a naturalist in Yellowstone. So I'd go up and there and spend the summer with him. And often we would go a lot of times with a group of people into Yellowstone. He knew Yellowstone really well. And we were on the Yellowstone River, kind of in the secret place. And I'd hiked upstream a little, just a little bit distance from everyone else. And, um, and then I saw a grizzly bear. There it was. There was, you could say, the activity of seeing. The perception. Oh, that's a grizzly bear. That's not a black bear. That's a grizzly bear. <laughs> and it was really helpful to have this immediate link that that bear is dangerous. So I didn't take time to think, you know, maybe I should hang out and really see. Maybe I shouldn't generalize like this. Like, I've never met this grizzly bear before. <laughs> Who knows? We found out later it was a she. she. She might be really sweet. I don't want to just categorize her with all other grizzly bears. So I didn't do that. I ran back to the other people I was with, and we climbed up these trees, which was a good thing. She came running over. She was really curious. I left this huge paw print on my friend's backpack that covered the entire thing. I am so glad that I have a mind that recognizes in that way, that could recognize a grizzly bear. So perception is not the problem. What the problem is, is that, is, is that it's to see that it's a constructed thing and to realize many of our perceptions aren't like the grizzly bear thing, that they've been influenced in a very diluted way by a society that is filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, that has pasted things on to the things we see in harmful ways. And then we read the world through these perceptions as if they're true. That's where the kicker is, is some of what we've inherited. And to see that. And there's so many other ways we perceive or recognize bodies. As I said, this 
body old or that body is old, this body is young or that body is young. And there, there can be that coupling together. You know, study after study, the bodies of those older seen as less than. This happens in our society. It happens with those bodies that are young too. Have you noticed generation after generation always sees the young as misguided in some manner? Have you noticed that? <laughs> 50s, 1950s is rock and roll, right? Now it's the internet. It's smartphones. The same dynamic. It's that less than, better than that gets connected to how a body is perceived. Short bodies, tall bodies, big bodies, small bodies. So much around body image that is inherited. If I were to grasp at that, get entangled in it, I might do something quite harmful. I would just be like those Brahmins who utilize a kind of societal system that everyone else hasn't consented to. If I were to grasp at those perceptions, get entangled in them, it just might be continuing something like a legacy of colonization. Yeah, the, these minds have been colonized and here we can free them through this sense restraint. And I want to point out how subtle it is what we're doing here. This is from James Baldwin. I think he, he puts it well. He's talking about his writing, but I think it really fits with what we're doing. He says, he says, if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. Then you can change reality. That's all we're doing is just a slightly different angle on what's arising. And that slight different angle is brought about by mindfulness, by simply noticing these activities, these dynamics arising. And then there's the other dimension that I, uh, that comes with this, which is the other flip side of this is the fear of being judged or being, you could say excluded in some way or not seen in a favorable light on retreat. I said, it can be around making a loud noise, around swallowing, around moving, around coming into the hall late. And I want to just normalize, so much of this is, is because we are social creatures. There's, there's millions of years of design in these, this physiology around our sensitivity of, of either being in the tribe or out of the tribe. And so these things can really move and impact the body when we're around other bodies in a silent environment like this. 
You know, it can be that sense of not wanting to disturb others, wanting to, of course, offer something really beautiful. But then it can tighten the body in, in some kind of manner. And I want to point out that this, this kind of worry or fear still can be a kind of conceit. This worry about being excluded. This worry about being less than in some kind of way. And to be aware of that. Because sometimes all I need to do is just to notice that, because a lot of times what happens for me is the body tightens. It's just, oh, okay, just the relaxing. Can I relax around these other bodies? Or it can take other kinds of thoughts, the sense of really getting lost and I really am the other, I really don't belong. And the sense of sometimes I'll find the mind wanting to seek solace in that sense, that feeling sense of separation. To separate myself out, being above it all in some kind of way. And again, you might notice there's a kind of judging or conceit that comes with that attempt to protect. And I want to point out, I want to make a caveat here. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, try to get us that this is somehow about all being the same. It's not about all being the same. It's about being able to reside in ourselves amongst other bodies. This is one writer, Peter Hershock puts it, it's, it's coming into this space of being different for each other rather than different from each other. then I must also acknowledge in terms of relation field, meetings with teachers, right? Oh, have you noticed the huge range? Sometimes the meetings I've had with teachers have been so sweet. The love that I've been able to garner from that, the compassion and support I've been able to receive has been so helpful. I wish it was only that. <laughs> but boy, I've just noticed the hours my mind has spent planning, planning, planning. No, I don't want to say that. I want to say this. Planning. <laughs> Worry, concern. How am I going to look? Should I say this or that? And that's just before the meeting, then after the meeting. Oh, my God. <laughs> right, there's the relational field. What is the mind doing? Just to notice it. It's, it's as James Baldwin saying, just altering it, even by a, militator, a, a millimeter, how the mind is looking at experience. And we alter it by, through mindfulness, through this noticing. And I want to point out, sometimes when, I, when I'm noticing these reverberations of being in a relational field and being mindful of what's arising in the mind, whether it be wanting or not wanting, fear, joy, sadness, that sometimes I need to, the only language I can think of is to sink down into the experience, really fully sink down into it. To get a, a deep sense of the arisings of these things. And again, a quote from James Baldwin that I, I find so insightful around this. Where he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense 
once hate is gone, they, were, they will be forced to deal with pain. I imagine, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will force, be forced to deal with pain, both collectively and individually. I remember experience of this on, on retreat. I went on retreat and uh, during the Dhamma talks, um, I was going crazy, it felt. I just, I hated the Dharma talks. <laughs> just like, oh my God. I can't believe they're saying that. And the intensity of the emotion was the thing that really got my curiosity. Like, what, what, what's up with all this aversion? Because it just was not landing right at all. It was just words, right? And then, and then finally, of course, oh, this is dukkha. I should maybe take a look at this. Sensing into that, really feeling into that whole dynamic of really touching into the pain underneath all that aversion and really feeling, oh, the wanting. Oh, here's the wanting. The wanting of my world to be affirmed. I want to hear a voice that, that affirms my world like this, this, this sensitivity, wanting to be seen and heard. And it really switched so much of when I could start to feel into that pain. A different relationship to myself and a different relationship to those talks. So to sense, sense deeply into this at times. And so what I'm offering is, is a sense of, again, this, this altering just by a millimeter through mindfulness. Yet it's not only that, that we can address the relational field. That's the main thing that we're really basic, basically saying, Dharma talk after Dharma talk after Dharma talk, really it's the same thing. But there's another way too, and that's not only to see the activity of perception, but to utilize perception. That's much of what we're doing here for the practice, is utilizing perception. Labeling is a kind of perception. The seeing impermanence, seeing unreliability, seeing not-self, seeing anicca, dukkha, and anatta, those are perceptions. So in the early Buddhist texts, they don't talk about them as the marks of existence, they talk about them as certain kinds of perception, certain ways of perceiving experience, because they lead to insight into this way of perceiving the world that uh, frees the heart and mind. And another way of perceiving or something that's, that's intertwined with, with perception that we've been also exploring is the Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas shape percep- perception in a way. And I find this is so helpful for the relational field is not only noticing what the mind is doing, but but to utilize the Brahma Viharas, which I know some of you are doing, some of you who are doing in sense of like loving kindness practice or compassion or medita practice in the in-between times, really practicing that around these other bodies. Have you noticed the difference it can make? 
of bringing this other possibility of seeing the world to these other bodies. Because so much, that was so much of a, the, the experience for me. I think when I did a long-term retreat of only doing loving kindness practice, it was like I got to feel my body open and relax around other bodies in such a radically different way. I didn't know how much I was holding in terms of bracing, in terms of probably this fear of being judged. And it just felt so good to have something more open, to come into a different relationship. So again, an encouragement, you might want to do that. Just, this, just a few phrases or a few words with these others that you're passing by. It can be so sweet. Another way of being in the relational field, allowing the heart to be in the relational field in a different way. And I want to share with you a, an excerpt from um, actually the diaries of Thomas Merton where he has a, a quite striking experience of, of this, of really having a different perception of those around him. And it happened on the street corner in Louisville, Kentucky, on the street corner of Fourth and Walnut. He says, in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut in the center of a shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. We are in the same world as everybody else. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. So bringing in this noticing, bringing in this, this sense of, I mean, of, of loving kindness or something like compassion or Brahma Viharas in terms of the relational field to see people shining, shining like the sun. And, and I also don't want to minimize the challenge of this, of really coming into a space with others. You know, also, especially if, if there is a part of our experience or part of ourselves that's been marginalized and we find ourselves completely surrounded often by the dominant culture, there can be these real things of feeling um, excluded in some kind of way. So it's not to deny that. It's just to open up other possibilities for the heart and mind. Maybe I'll end with a poem that I feel expresses this turn, this turn of <clears throat> moving out of six fixed perceptions and stories and into a different relationship to others in this field. It's um, by the poet Tony Hoagland. It's called Phone Call. It's actually sweet. There's a, there's a someone in our song in Flagstaff that... Um, she was dating Tony Hoagland when they both got into Zen practice and that was the beginning of both of their practices. So he begins, 
Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. <laughs> that might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration. An immoderate description of the person who at the moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must ever get regretted pain for my therapy. What I meant was, was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them leaving deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. And the other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming, with bad knees and white hair, white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. What is it to actually see the people we carry inside of us? and distinguish those from the people who are in front of us so that there can be a, a true meeting, a truly different kind of society to live in. So may our practice here on this retreat go to the liberation of our own hearts and minds and those of others in a way that that ends the process of colonization. That's it for a moment.